this? It's a trophy. What is a trophy? An For those of you who uh, were on that side of the room or online or watching or listening later, some smart aleck by the name of Tony Mills just ruined the morning and called this an idol. It can be in the wrong context, so thank you for that. Thank you. Note to self, never open up for open comments ever again if Tony's here. So there you go. So, okay, what are some other things of what this is? What's that? An award. Yeah, what else? Recognition. Recognition. Yeah, okay. Awesome. Well, an achievement. Thank you. (laughs) Babe, it took you long enough to tell you what I told you to say this morning, but you got there. Your friends are like, Nicole, wake up. Jason's looking at you. So there you go. Um, Okay, so let's be honest, right? Like, we spend countless hours days, weeks, months, years to earn one of these, right? Like, like we spend so many hours and, and countless of our parents' dollars, I mean, of our dollars. Um, and, and I mean, we go all in to win one of these things, right? Now, here's the thing. Did the trophy do anything? No. So I was looking down around, so I should have grabbed some of the ones downstairs because they have a lot at the dance studio here. And there's some with like the figurines. Did the figurines do anything for this? No. The people who worked for this worked for this, right? It's the result of someone's work. Or another way of saying this is we don't admire a trophy for having done something great. We recognize a trophy as the representation of someone great. Okay? This is merely a reflection of something else. It, its value is in the one that it represents. Now, what if you, what would you think, what would you say if I said each and every single one of you here this morning in your home, wherever you're at, you are a trophy? Yeah, there you go. You are a trophy husband. Trent, I know what you are thinking. That's what I tell Kim all the time. I'm a trophy husband. What if I would say that you're a trophy wife? Yeah. <laughs> Wise man. Wise man. What if I'd say that you're a trophy uh, child? Yeah. What if I'd say you're a trophy parent? Uh, not if you heard what I told my kids yesterday, right? What if I said that you're a trophy uh, worker? or a trophy boss, or a trophy coach, or a trophy player, that no matter who you are, where you've been, what you've done, you are a trophy. You represent something much bigger than yourself. Now, some of us would say, that's what I try to keep telling everybody, and others of us would say, there's no way. There's no way that I am a trophy. Well, this morning, we are actually going to see how we are all trophies that reflect something or more accurately, someone bigger than us. So last week, thank you, Rich, so much for for showing us how David finally realized that God needs to be the focus of our worship, right? A lot of times we come in, we think, oh, that was good, that was bad, I got something from it, I didn't. Now, I do need to interject. All week long, I've been dying to ask, I've forgotten to text Karen this, um, so I'll just ask you in front of everybody. 
What was the phrase about Oreos? It's an abomination of to the original cookie. Now, I have, a, I have a confession or question. What did you think when I talked about putting chunky peanut butter on Oreos? Does that desecrate the Oreo? Oh, wow. It was funny. I had like 10 people ask me, are you and Karen okay? Is it like, you guys, you guys good? I was like, I think so. She hasn't... There you go. There is, is that why all the Oreos were smashed on our house? After, there you go. So, no, I just, I, I really, that resonated so much, and, and, and we can see ourselves in that. Well, this morning, we're going to continue this story, right? Like, David finally realizes worship is all about God, and we are the beneficiaries of that thing about being God, and it, but it's all about Him. So this morning, we're going to pick up in 2 Samuel chapter 7, starting in verse 1, and we're going to see the results of David surrendering his life to live a life of worship in God. His life, his focus, his energy, his dignity, he surrenders all those things, the creator of all things. And so we're going to pick up in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1. Um, it goes like this. When, David, when King David was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all the surrounding enemies. Okay, what's happening, right? He brings in the Ark of the Covenant... <clears throat> And, and everything is actually calm. He's the king. He's enjoying some peace and some rest and some prosperity. He's in the palace and he's just, he has this time to reflect. He's not worried about going and defending and, and defeating and things like that. So he sits back and he's kind of like, hey, I'm going to settle in and I'm going to enjoy some peaceful time of reflection. Well, what, what happens in that? The, verse 2, the king summoned Nathan the prophet. Okay, this is the first time we hear about Nathan. In, in the Bible, we don't know where he came from. We don't know anything about him. All we know is that he is a prophet. Now, what's interesting is that when Israel asked for kings, God said no, and they kept on insisting. He says, okay, good luck, right? So what he did is he gave the nation kings, but then he also gave the nation prophets because the king was kind of the government leader, but the prophet was the religious. It was the spiritual leader. And so the prophets were given to, to hold the kings accountable and to constantly point the nation of Israel back to their God. And so what's really interesting is that if you fast forward past David and Solomon, all of a sudden now prophet being called as a prophet was not such a desirable position anymore because most of the kings of Israel ended up hating the prophets. Because they wanted to do what they wanted to do. They are the king. They can do what, you know. And the, and the prophets were like, no, 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 no. We got, you got to go back to God on this. And so, so a lot of the kings hated the prophets because they were calling them out. David, on the other hand, as he's sitting there reflecting, and he's like, God, what do you think about all this, right? I'm going to call Nathan the prophet. And so he brings him in. And then he says this. I am, look, David said, I'm living in a beautiful cedar palace, but the ark of God is out there in a tent. Now, David sees God's ark, where it's said to have the presence of God, um, sitting in this ratty, dirty, couple hundred year old tent. And he's sitting there in his nice cedar palace, right? And he says to Nathan, this isn't okay. This doesn't seem right. Now, what's really interesting is like, like uh, Rich talked last week of he wanted to bring the ark in maybe for ill intentions or maybe misguided intentions at first and, and then it, it falls and the guy grabs it and he dies and so David's kind of like, get that thing out of here, right? Did anybody notice where he sent the ark? He sent it to the home of Obed-Edom, the, Git, the Gittite of Gath. 
Did Gath ring a bell, anybody's memory? Who else is from Gath? Goliath. Gath is a Philistinian town that's home to, that was home to Goliath. And if you look later on in, um, in 2 Samuel 21, if you fast forward through there, it's actually not just the home of Goliath. There's a whole other family of giants, one that has six fingers and six toes on each hand and each feet. I mean, this guy was not only big, he could like literally just like, like crush you. What's crazy is that David wanted originally to get it out of his presence and go put it into the Philistine wilderness behind enemy lines. This is craziness, right? But then he has this change of heart. He, has, he understands what the heart of worship is, and so he brings it back. And, and now he realizes, oh my gosh, it's, he's sitting out there in this ratty old tent while I am living in my luxurious palace. And so David wants to do something about it. He says... Um, I like how Nathan says in, in verse 3, Nathan replied to the king, go ahead and do whatever you have in mind, for the Lord is with you. Now, what's really interesting is that David is showing he's aligning his life, he's aligning his character, he's aligning his will, he's aligning his leadership, his, his rule as a king to God's heart. And so, and so Nathan says, hey, you're, you're in line, so just you know, get as close as you can to God, make his desires your desires, and then follow your desires, as long as those desires are godly desires, Right? And, and I think there's some wisdom tonight. And, and as much as God, I'm sure, appreciated David's gesture, his thought, God has other plans. And he says, no, or at least not quite yet. We're going we're gonna to read through a, ch- a chunk here, and then we'll rip this apart as we go. Um, verse 4. But at that time, uh, uh, sorry, but that same night, the Lord said to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord has declared. Are you the one to build a house for me to live in? I have never lived in a house from the day I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until this very day. I have always moved from one place to another with a tent and a tabernacle as my dwelling. Yet no matter where I have gone with the Israelites, I have never once complained to Israel's tribal leaders, the shepherds of my people Israel. I have never asked them, why haven't you built me a beautiful cedar house, right? Like God's kind of playing with them a little bit. He is, you think I need a box to live in? Now God and now go and say to my servant David, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies has declared. I took you from tending sheep in the pasture and selected you to be the leader of my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and I have destroyed all your enemies before your eyes. Now I will make your name as famous as anyone who has ever lived on earth. And I will provide a homeland for my people Israel, planting them in a secure place where they will never be disturbed. Evil nations won't oppress them as they've done in the past, starting from the time I appointed judges to rule my people, Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Furthermore, the Lord declares that he will make, you a, make a house for you, a dynasty of kings. You see the ironic twist there? David wants to build a house for God, and God says, no, I'm going to build a house for you. And David's probably sitting there thinking, I'm in my palace. That's a great house, right? Verse 12, for when you die and are buried with your ancestors, I will rise up one of your descendants, your own offspring, and I will make his kingdom strong. He is the one who will build a house, a temple for my name, and I will secure his royal throne forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. If he sins, I will correct and discipline him with the rod like any father would. But my favor will not be taken from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from your sight. 
Your house and your kingdom will continue before me for all time, and your throne will be secure forever. So Nathan went back to David and told him everything the Lord had said in this vision. Now, there's a lot going on there, but I think we have to step back and, and kind of look at, in, in the ancient world, there was this pattern to where um, kings and rulers, when they'd come into power, they would, first of all, they'd build a temple to their god or gods. They're kind of like, okay, we have this god or these gods, we need to build a house to, to make the god happy, right? To make the gods happy. And then, and then, and then the, the second step would be the temple would actually make the god or gods famous and powerful, Okay. We have this God, if we build a big enough palace for him, a big enough whatever thing, then people are going to see how powerful that God actually is. And then the third step is that the God or gods will be so excited and so grateful to their, to their subjects that the king, uh, they will thank the king and they will bless the king and the kingdom with their power and success. So if you see how this happens is that the whole thing is that the gods need us. I'm going to build this, it's going to make them powerful, and it'll make me powerful. The gods need us, and I will then become powerful through what I do for the God. The narrative of this is work hard for God or the gods, and they will work hard for you. But here God flips the script. The first thing is this, I am God. I was there before any of you, I created all things, I am God and I am uh, powerful. Number two, I choose and call you and then I gift you the gift of grace. I'm God and I'm going to give you a gift. I choose you. I call you. And then the third is then I invite you to live your life with me. Enter into a relationship with me and, and be my servant, right? Now, the whole thing of being a servant, like we have a lot of obviously bad examples of servanthood throughout the course of history. It's awful, right? But if you're the servant of a bad master, it's, it's terrible. If, you're, if you are a part of a good God, then it's good. Then we're free to be in that relationship with him. He is not like a human master. He is the creator of all things. He is good. He is pure. He is loving. So the narrative of this one is that we need God. God doesn't need us. He chooses us. He reaches out to find us and to bless us before we do anything for him. Now, why does God flip the script from the ancient narrative of build it and then the gods will come and then we'll be blessed to here is God, come and be a part of my kingdom? Well, there's three things. Number one, it's called the incarnation principle. Incarnation is huge in biblical historical Christianity because from the beginning of time, there's echoes of this incarnational Messiah that would come. And then we see the Messiah come. It's God entering into his own creation. It's Philippians 2, right? Even though he was God, he, he didn't grasp onto that. He came into his own creation as a servant to love, to live, to teach, to serve, to die for us. Because he wants to dwell with his people. God wants to be with his people in the reality of their condition. He's not like this, he, he's pure, he's pristine, but yet he also wants to be in the reality of us. So, so you look at the history of Israel. If Israel is in tents, God is in a tent. If Israel is wandering, God is wandering. 
You have the tabernacle, you have the smoke, you have the fire, and he is following them around on their, in their reality. If they're in pain, so is he. Even generations later, after this temple is built, the people wander away, and they're broken, and they go off into exile. And guess what happens to God's presence in the temple? The temple's destroyed. Did God cease to exist when his temple ceased to exist? No, because he's not confined to a, bro- to a box. He wants to be where his people are at. And we're going to see the fullness of the meaning of this in just a little bit. So the incarnation principle, the second thing is this. God says he is spirit and he doesn't need what we need. We need food, shelter, things like that, right? God doesn't. He doesn't need a place to dwell because he is everywhere all the time. He doesn't need. He just chose to experience or he chose to to give us these things so we could experience uh, parts of the reality of who is, but that's not the fullness of who he is, right? He doesn't need physical housing. And then the third thing is this, is that David's plan is too small. I'm sure David had this big vision and was like, oh yeah, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. And David says that, or God says, yeah, that's, that's cute, that's sweet, that's nice, I appreciate it, but I have something so much bigger in mind than something right here, right now, and, and in a physical way. It's going to take longer than David has. David's going to play an important role in it, sure, um, but it's going to be bigger than David. Now, David has the choice to either say, but, but my plan, but these are my designs. This, I already have the blueprints printed up, and this is, this is my desire. This is, I want to do this for you, God. He could have insisted like Saul, right? But instead, he says, okay, if that's not your plan, I don't want to be outside of your will, so show me your plan, whatever it might be. God was appointing David to establish Israel as a powerful and unified nation. And a part of the reality where they're at is they needed a warrior. They needed a military leader to defend against their enemies and to solidify Israel as a nation uh, to, to bring it all together, right? And that would require war, and war is bloody. It's kind of awkward in First Chronicles 28.3, David admits to God that, that he says, God, I know you don't want a warrior with tons of blood on his hands to build your place of peace and worship and rest. It just, God said, David, I need you to do this, and I'm going to use someone else to build my temple. It's going to be your son. Solomon was going to be the one to build the temple. Now, what amazes me is that when David was told no, he not only didn't fight against God, he said, okay, I'm not going to build it, but I'm going to start saving up the wood, the materials, stuff like that, so that Solomon can build it. He thinks bigger than himself. He wants to be following God and what God wants. I love how the Life Application Study Bible puts it. He says, David accepted his part in God's plan and did not try to go beyond it. Now remember, Saul, who was a man after his own heart, compared to David, who is a man after God's own heart. David doesn't fight it. He doesn't try to go beyond it. Sometimes God says no to our plans. And when he does, we should take part in the other opportunities that he gives us. Sometimes we're so focused on, on it's kind of funny because like I'm, I'm doing a devotional that's talking about God's will, and, and sometimes it's so easy to focus on God's specific will that we obsess on what is the specific that we forget the general will. We know what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to love God and love people. That's the great commandment. And we're supposed to serve the world. That's the great commission. 
Don't do things that are stupid that are going to hurt either of those, right? Like that, if you want to know what God's will for your life is, be a disciple who loves God, loves people, and serve the world. Don't obsess about the details. Just ask God, what do you have for me today? But sometimes God does give us that specific, like this is what I want you to do. When we sense God seemingly tell us no, do we understand it in our heart that God is guiding us to something better? Now, Nicole is not the first girl that I ever dated. In fact, she wasn't the first girl that I ever... I know. Close your ears, Tatum. In fact, she wasn't even the first girl that I thought I would marry. Praise God, I didn't. I'm serious. When, when we broke up, I just thought, life is over. There is no more meaning. God, where are you? Right? There's this angstiness that we're falling into. But finally, I had to say, God, I'm going to trust you. And, and, if, and if this isn't the one, then you have someone even better. Right? If this isn't the thing, then you have something better. I'm going to go all in and I'm going to follow you. I'm going to trust you, God. Sometimes hearing God's no requires more faith than hearing God's yes. Amen? That's where we see where our real faith is at. Saul would have insisted on his own will, but David's heart was after God's heart. Therefore, he didn't want any imitation, any shortcuts. He wanted to surrender to God's heart. Now, an interesting note here is that back in 1 Samuel 8, 5, the nation of Israel, they have the judges who are leading them as God's representatives, and they're sort of like, hey, we're going to do what you want us to do, everything like that. But it wasn't good enough because they wanted kings like all the other nations did. And so they were like, give us a king, give us a king, give us a king. The word for king is melech. Melech means king. And in this section in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 8, God says that he took David from the hills as a shepherd and made him a leader, a servant. That word for leader means nagid, which is prince. They wanted a malach, he gave them a nagid. They wanted a king, but God gave them a prince or a servant. God is the true king. And he didn't want anybody who was going to try to compete for that spot. And so he gave them a true leader with the heart of a servant. Now, it's important to, to understand what's going on here is that God is establishing a covenant. Now, the word covenant is not used in here. Um, the word covenant is uh, barit, um, and it doesn't appear in 2 Samuel, chapter, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, but it's implied later on um, because as David is reflecting towards the end of his life in 2 Samuel, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 5, um, he marvels that God would make a barit olam, which means covenant everlasting or an everlasting covenant. And so even though we don't see that word in here, it's, it's thoroughly implied. And then David's son uh, Solomon also recalls in, in 1 Kings chapter 8, uh, verses 23 and 24, that, that uses that same word. You made an everlasting covenant with my father. Now, God, is, God makes these covenants, right? The first one is this. It's the Abrahamic or the Abrahamic covenant. And that's when God chose this nomadic pagan in the middle of the desert 
who, who was old and childless and barren and seemingly at the end of his rope. And he says, no, I'm going to make this covenant with you. And you are going to establish a great nation. This is God establishing his people on earth. And he, that these people would then in turn bless the world. I will bless you so that you will bless the world. That's in Genesis. In Exodus, God establishes the Mosaic covenant. Moses comes in and he gives the law. He goes up to the Mount, Mount Sinai and, 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 he, and God gives him the law. And, and basically, the, the Mosaic covenant is, is God guiding his people, his chosen people under the Abrahamic covenant to now, this is how you don't kill each other. <laughs> like, like, this is how you don't do things that will lead you to kill each other. It's very simple, right? He says, I'll give you 10. If you mess these up, I'll give you more. It's kind of like we told our kids. We don't have a lot of rules, but that's up to you to either keep it that way. Well, they were dumb, and they, not my kids. My kids were perfect, and, and they didn't have to add any extra rules. But the nation of Israel kept on wandering, and so the more laws, more laws, more, more rules, right? But that, so God establishes his people. He guides them. And now in 2 Samuel, God establishes the the Davidic covenant. And that is God's promise of presence amongst his people. Both soon through the temple, but also a later fulfillment through the family line of David. And that's where God is saying, yes, the temple is great, but the real covenant is, is it's the presence through the temple now, but there's going to be someone that comes later on that is so much better than a brick-and-mortar building. And he will be the real presence of God amongst, your pres- amongst you. Now, um, a side note is, well, it's not the side note, it's actually the whole point. <laughs> But what it's, the side note is this, is there's this weird little part in there from verse 11 through 16 that, that talks about your, 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 your son, I will be his father. Um, if he messes up, I'll, I'll, I'll discipline him with a rod, you know, and, and he's going to do this, he's going to do that. Now, there's two, there's two layers to this. One is the immediate fulfillment. He's talking about Solomon, David's son. David's son, Solomon, will build the temple, and he will, he will be great. He'll be all this kind of stuff like that, right? It's going to be amazing. Um, but this, here's the thing. Solomon is, is not perfect. He, one wife wasn't enough, two wives weren't enough, he, he, 700 wives weren't enough. So then he went out and got 300 concubines. I don't, I don't think God really was cool with that, you know? Um, but, uh, and then... Lo and behold, no wonder his, his kids all go crazy and his kids are fighting against each other and, and they rip the kingdom to pieces. Um, and after a period of, of wisdom and peace and prosperity, um, he builds the temple. But because of all these dynamics going on, his, his insatiable appetite, so to speak, uh, the, the kids start fighting and, and he starts to, King Solomon even, starts worshiping idols from his wives' backgrounds. That's something we don't talk a lot about. But it it happened. Towards the end of Solomon's life, it's tragic because he starts taking, his wives are kind of bringing in, if I come, my idol comes too, right? And so, okay, I'll worship your idol and I'll worship your idol and I'll worship your idol. And then his kids start fighting about those. and, And what they do is they actually divide the kingdom. The unified kingdom of Israel is a short-lived thing because the kings were screwing it up. 
And so they, they actually take it away, and then if you fast forward, they go off into exile, and then there's this period of, of silence until the fulfillment of the new covenant. So you have God's people guiding God's people, God's presence with his people, and then the new covenant, which is the fulfillment of God, God's presence in his within his people. And that's the real point of this section, is the ultimate fulfillment that is Jesus. Jesus is the real eternal king. He didn't need discipline because he didn't do anything bad, but was he disciplined? That was the point. David's son was disciplined for our sin, for my sin, for your sin. Jesus hung on the cross for our sin, and that was the fulfillment of the new covenant. Now, we have the privilege of 3,000 years between the Davidic covenant and where we can see the fulfillment of that covenant, right? 2,000 years ago, after 1,000 years from, from David, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, this is the record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah, the descendant of David. Israel had been waiting for generation after generation, and then, and then Matthew comes onto the scene and says, the new covenant is being fulfilled right now. The true king, the true savior, the true Messiah is here. So what did he do? Luke chapter 22, verse 19 and 20. He took some bread, Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to it for God. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he took another cup of wine and said, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my body, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. Jesus is God's forgiveness for our sins. He was able to do what the old covenant, what the law was never able to do. In fact, it was never meant to do it. It was leading toward the new covenant. Through his sacrifice on the cross, Jesus fulfills and replaces the old covenant. Our past is wiped clean, and we have a new future, a new identity, now and forever. And the cool thing is, is because of what Jesus did, his spirit, which is the ultimate presence in our lives, lives in and with us now and forever. And I love 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 14 through 18, where the Apostle Paul reflects on this. He says, but the people's minds were hardened. And to this day, whenever the old covenant is being read, the same veil covers their minds so they cannot understand the truth. When they're reading that, it's not like that we shouldn't read the Old Testament, but that for them, it was kind of like, it was a stumbling block, right? Like it was sort of like, when we read the law, we want to go back under that legal system to where, where it's, what can I do for God, Right? And it says this veil covers their minds so they can't understand it. And this veil can be removed only by believing in Christ. But whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. For the Lord is the Spirit. And wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. Jesus removes that veil from us so that we can truly see God, so that we can experience his presence in our lives, so we can be filled with his spirit, that constant presence in and with us. 
We need to be careful of, of anything, anyone that seeks to resurrect and, and reconstruct the old covenant system in our lives. Because anything that competes with what Jesus did for us on the cross will lead us away from him. Then chapter 7 wraps up with this. David humbly and gratefully accepts God's love and the honor of being his servant. I'm going to um, read a couple verses from the end of chapter 7 here, starting in verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and prayed, Who am I, O sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? How great are you, O sovereign Lord? There is no one like you. We have never even heard of another God like you. Verse 24. You made Israel your very own people forever, and you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, I am your servant. Do as you have promised concerning me and my family. So the big idea of 2 Samuel chapter 7 is this. When we surrender our lives to God, we become trophies. We become trophies of his grace, what he did for us. We didn't earn it. He did. And we get to represent something greater, someone greater than us. Instead of starting with the question, what can or should I do for God? We need to start with the question, what has God already done for us? Sorry, JFK, or whoever said that. Um, Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. That makes a lot of sense in a lot of ways. But it doesn't work great with our relationship with God. Because if we start, ask not what your God can do for you, ask what I can do for my God, that will work for a while until it doesn't. And then we crash. Well, I've been working my butt off for you, God. And where were you? I was faithful. I, is this a one-sided relationship for your God? Like, I am busting my butt for you, and you're just sitting there. I don't even see you. Where are you anymore? I haven't heard from you in years. Maybe I've never even really heard of you, heard from you. And then we have this crisis of faith because it's me, me, me. I've built you this. I've done this. I've done that. And we lose sight of what Christ did for us on the cross. The gift that he gave us. When we start every day relishing, who am I, oh God, that you would even know my name? I am total fangirling on you right now, right? Like, sorry, it's, I know you guys love it when I pop culture reference, right? No, it makes it awkward. I know. Okay, no more of that. But you know what I mean? Like when we honestly have this sense of, God, you did what for me? Now, all of a sudden, I start to act differently because I have no other choice. It's the only natural response. Instead of mustering up a lot of willpower and, and determination, it's I am just on autopilot here because God loves me. God accepts me. God transforms me. God frees me. I, where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. If I'm living in fear and selfishness and addiction and lust and, and pride and envy, if I'm living on those things, I'm not free. We have to realize the reality that, that when we have the spirit of God in us, we are already set free. Any prison bars, they're not there from God. They're there because we allow them to be there. And we need to rely on the power of the Spirit and His Word and His presence to open those cages up to where we can be set free in the reality of our relationship with Him. 
if we start every day, if we make that the core of our identity, that I am a trophy of Christ's sacrifice, his, God's grace, can you imagine how different our marriages would be, our parenting would be, our coaching would be, our leading, our serving, our working, how different every area of our life would be if instead of going into a day thinking, I am empty, therefore I must try to fill it, instead of that saying, I am full, I am saved, I am loved, I am accepted, I am forgiven, I am freed, all these things, and I can live out of the fullness of that. Now, all of a sudden, we treat our spouse different. Now, all of a sudden, we treat our kids different. Now, all of a sudden, we show up to work with a different pep in our step, right? Like, we, 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 we treat our neighbors differently. All those things, because we are full of God's grace. Not our works, not our efforts, but God's in us. Yes, God calls us to do things. But it's never to fulfill ourselves, never to make him happy, it's simply a grateful response to him and what he's done. I love how the Christ-centered exposition commentary says this. Our lives are supposed to burn brightly with evidence of God's miraculous greatness. And I, ironically, the more we steep ourselves in the finished work of Christ, in other words, the more we remind ourselves of what Christ has done for us on the cross, the more we do that, the more we will find his spirit rising up within us. The fire, the fire to do in the Christian life comes only from being soaked in the fuel of what he has done. That is cool. When we try to muster it up on our own, it's not going to work. We're going we're gonna to do great for a little bit, but then we're all going to get to the end of our rope. We're all going to get dry. We're all going to get tired. But when we continually soak ourselves with the fuel of what he has done, that empowers us to do. When we surrender our lives to God, we become trophies of his grace. We reflect him. We represent him. That's why the Apostle Paul says we are ambassadors of Christ. We are to reflect the goodness of Christ to the world around us. That's what the world is dying for. They don't need more rules. They don't need more an old covenant thinking. They don't need more of that. They need the example of Christ in their midst. The incarnational presence, the, the incarnational prison, incarnational uh, principle right? Are we out in the world being salt and light, reflecting the work of Christ? Do people look at us and say, you're different? Or do they look at us and say, you're different, right? Like, I don't know what you have that I don't, but I think I want it and I know I need it. We don't have to come up with really super convincing arguments. We don't have to be combative. We don't have to write big placard signs of we just need to live differently. We need to live out the fullness of, of Christ's forgiveness, the work of the Holy Spirit, what it means to have a heart of worship that's for God. Now, we're going to be, we're, 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 we're human. We're going to mess up. Even the way we handle our mistakes, our opportunities to show grace to those around us. So, moving from knowing to doing, from belief to action. Three, three things. Number one, this week, let's examine our lives. Let's look at our lives and, and see are there areas that we're trying to find fulfillment by doing things or are we doing things because we are fulfilled? 
do kind of a self-inventory, kind of a self-check on that. Number two, when we hit roadblocks and hear no or not yet, do we insist on what we want or do we immediately go to God and put our trust in him? Let's just ask ourselves that this week. And then last, actively, purposefully surrender ourselves to God and say, I want the heart of a servant. I want my heart to be after what your heart's about. I'm going to run to you. I'm going to accept the love that you've already given me. I'm going to accept the work that you've already done in me. And God, anything in my future, I want to be in line with that. I surrender to you as your servant. So this week, I'm going to close out with this. Um, Each week, we're trying to to look from, uh, take a peek into David's journal, right? Because he gives us his journal in, in, the, in the book of Psalms. This, this morning is kind of a weird one because David didn't write about it, but his friends did. His friends wrote about David. You can't write in my journal. <laughs> it says Psalm 89, a psalm of Ethan the Ezraite, a psalm about, say, about, about David. These are his contemporaries, his peers, writing a psalm about him. And it says this, the first eight verses says this, I will sing of the Lord's unfailing love forever. Young and old will hear of your faithfulness. Your unfailing love will last forever. Your faithfulness is as enduring as the heavens. The Lord said, I have made a covenant with David, my chosen servant. I have sworn this oath to him. I will establish your descendants as kings forever, and they will sit on your throne from now until eternity. All heaven will praise your great wonders, Lord. Myriads of angels will praise you for your faithfulness. For who in all of heaven can compare with the Lord? What mightiest angel is anything like the Lord? The highest angelic powers stand in awe of God. He is far more awesome than all who surround his throne. O Lord God of heaven's armies, where is there anyone as mighty to you as you, O Lord? You are entirely faithful. That's my encouragement this week. That's my invitation. That's my challenge is that if we are filled with angst and duty and obligation and frustration and we're just sick and tired of this, step back and ask why. Are we trying to compensate for something? Are we trying to earn something? Or can we rest in the peace, in the hope, in the joy of his love for us? When we live lives of love, that's noticeable. I'm telling you, it's contagious. That's my prayer for us this week. Let's do this self-check, and I'd encourage just to reach out, talk amongst your families, talk amongst friends, connect group, wherever it might be. Talk about these things. But I don't want to miss the opportunity to, to extend this, an invitation. If you want to put yourself, say, God, I want to surrender my life to you. I want to surrender my family, my friendships, my career, my finances, my private life, the the things that I'm excited about, the things that I'm struggling with. If you want to surrender that to him, don't wait. And that might just be like, hey, God, I've known you for years. I'm your follower, everything like that, but I just want to surrender to you. Or it might be, I am so sick and tired of trying to do life on my own. And I don't know you yet, God, but I, I want to. Surrender our lives through prayer to him and just say, God, I give you my life. I'm going to pray. And if, if 
you want to talk afterwards, we can talk afterwards. If you want to, on, on greenhouseutah.com, you can go into to next steps and then, and then new to faith or, or baptism or whatever it might be that God's laying on your heart. Uh, just let us know. But you can always just reach out to us too and we can talk through it and pray through it and, and say, okay, now, now what can we do moving forward with what God's telling us? So let's pray. Um, wrap up with some worship. God, I thank you so much for your love. I thank you for the fact that, that we are not on our own. God, you don't just give us a task list, a, um, a, rule, a list of rules of do's and don'ts and things that we're supposed to do for you to be good enough and, and um, worthy and to make you love us more. Instead, God, you give us yourself. You meet us where we're at. And you love us too much to leave us that way. God, you invite us to follow you. you. You give us your spirit, your word. You give us the gift of worship to where we can surrender our lives to you. God, I pray that every day when we, if, if we wake up hearing voices of condemnation or doubt or whatever it might be, God, I pray that we would hear your voice saying, I won you. You are my trophy. I gave everything for you. And nothing is more, more, more powerful than that gift. God, I pray that that reality would just transform us. God, we are not perfect. We never will be until we're with you. But God, I pray that every day we can just experience the, the power of that surrender to you. God, that we can see the things going on in our lives as opportunities to see your faithfulness, to see your power. God, I pray that as we, this week, as we, probably some of us already have some things coming to our minds and are laid on our hearts. God, I pray that we can actively just take those to you. God, I pray that we can bring along other brothers and sisters, other friends that can help us in that journey. But God, I pray for freedom. God, I thank you so much for each one here and those who are watching and, and listening elsewhere. Let's pray that we can just experience your presence more and more every day. God, we love you. We praise you in your name.